Let's take our Bibles together and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're reading at verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, reading together at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The subject of this entire paragraph that goes on to the end of the chapter, to verse 29, is to reflect on what it means for people to approach the living God. The thought is captured indirectly in verse 18 and verse 22 in these words, For you have not come, verse 18, but you have come, verse 22. And it's used, uh, this, this word that's used to come in this, in this passage is used regularly of sacred access. That is, of drawing near to God in public worship. This is made explicit in verse 28, where it says in verse 28, Let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us then offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So in talking about approaching God... The author uses a technique that he's used already in this book, and that is the technique of arguing from the lesser to the greater. By doing so, he contrasts the worship of the old covenant with that of the new covenant, the lesser and the greater, the former and the latter. He talks about the, he, he not only contrasts them, but he also connects them by saying of both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that the purpose of worship is to approach the living God in both cases. The Old Covenant reached its climax, its zenith, when the Jewish church came to Mount Sinai and gathered around the base of the mountain there and received the Ten Commandments, the law of God. The New Covenant reaches its zenith, its high point, when Lord's Day by Lord's Day, the covenant people of God approach God in God's terms through the blood of Jesus Christ confidently and have access to Him. Throughout this book, then, the author has been comparing and contrasting the church state of Israel in the Old Covenant and the church of the new covenant in Christ. And he's contrasted them in two ways. Let's look at these. Under the old covenant, he says, people approached God, and their approach involved external rites and ceremonies. Those external rites and ceremonies, the whole sacrificial system, for example, the need for a temple with all of the accoutrements of the temple, all of that is now passé. In the new covenant, we approach God 
at his word, his summons. But our preparation for approaching God is not so much by external washings and ceremonies as by our internal spiritual preparation. We are washed and cleansed internally and made fit for the presence of God. It is a heart movement towards God that involves all of God's people moving from the heart as we come into God's presence. So that's the approach of the old and the new. Under the old covenant, the appearances of God were different from under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, whenever God appeared to people, his appearances were suited to the subject of the matter. So when God comes to Abraham, for example, right at the very beginning of uh, the book of Genesis, when God comes to Abraham, he appears in some human form. He he sees a, a human form. When God comes to Moses, when during that period when Moses is in the desert as a shepherd, uh, he's just got married. Uh, he's yet to begin his life work, which is to go back and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. When God comes to appear to Moses there, you'll remember that he appeared to him in the form of that self-fueling, self-burning, self-existing fire. The fire in the bush that never burned, the burning bush. Well, it wasn't the bush that burned, the fire burned. The bush remained untouched. When he came to appear, you remember, when the the, uh, children of Israel had crossed the Jordan into the promised land and they're facing these cities with their armies and they were just an untrained rabble and they're terrified by the reports that they've heard of by these great cities and the giants and the land and, and so on. The Lord appears to them as the commander, the armed commander of the armies of heaven to Joshua, inspiring fear and dread in Joshua and hopefully inspiring fear and dread in the enemy. All of those appearances in the Old Testament were suited to the specific need of the moment of the people of God. Fast forward to the new covenant. There has only been one appearance of God. One, the God who appeared at many times and spoke to people in many different ways under the old covenant appears in his fullest and final way in the new covenant in Christ. God manifest in the flesh. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form. And so the great contrast between the old and the new covenants are these. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The author is going to compare and contrast the two covenants in this passage we have before us today. So the great disjunction, this great disjunction between how God came to them and how they in turn come to God is now going to be spelt out for us here. Let's go down through it together. We'll take it clause by clause. First of all, we have not come to what may be touched. That's the the language that's used here. The word used means to feel, to touch, to handle, to sense. So it's all about sensory perception. It's about what appears to our human 
senses. That's the idea that's being referred to here. So, so it's exterior things, earthly things, worldly things, the things that we are familiar with, that we see, that we touch, that we smell, that we hear, and so on. These external things. So the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. They'd been brought out of Egypt. They're taken into the heart of the desert. They're far, far away from any of the tribes that are settled in the fringes of the desert. They're right there in the heart of the desert, far from prying eyes, far from any other form of human life. God has chosen his people, delivered his people, brought them to himself. They are a holy people. They're cut off from everything and everyone else. There they are, and they're brought to Mount Sinai. And it's there they have an encounter with God. They can't, they can't escape. There's nowhere for them to go. They're in the desert. They're at this mountain. They're trapped. It's God and them. That's the kind of situation that they're in. We've got to imagine this. But by emphasizing this word, that they came to what may be touched. We're, we're having an emphasis here, do you notice, on the sensory, on the exterior, on the external, on the earthly, on the physical, on the material. The author is distinguishing the material from the spiritual, the earthly from the heavenly. He's making a disjunction, and he's saying of the Old Covenant that its experience of God was at the level of the material and the earthly and the sensory and the visible and the tangible. It was that primarily. Oh yes, there are spiritual dimensions, and God tells the people of those spiritual dimensions, but the whole experience was at this very tangible level. They came to what may be touched. And the contrast between the law and the gospel is that whereas the law refers to the external life and to the external action, the gospel goes to the heart. It goes to the spirit. It goes to the interior of our lives. We've not come to what may be touched. Secondly, we see here that they came to a blazing fire. A blazing fire that was a sign of the presence of God. Deuteronomy puts it like this. The mountain burned with fire. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Or in Exodus 19, the Lord descended on the mount in fire. God came in fire. You'll notice the very last phrase of this chapter says, our God is a consuming fire. So the experience of the law is connected to a vision of God as consuming fire. And that was one of the things in which which affected the people. Three times we find in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that the people cite the fire as the reason for their terror at the presence of God. This great fire will consume us, they said. It will consume us. Our God is a consuming fire, jealous in his affections for his people. His law is like a fearsome fire, we're told in Deuteronomy 33. 
And since Sinai was the place where the law was given, the fire on Sinai illustrates for us something of the effect of the law of God. When the law of God stands alone, when when we are in the presence of God and the only item on the agenda is the law of God, it is a consuming fire. It consumes us. It slays us. When human beings come into the presence of God and the only item between the human being and God is his law, the Apostle Paul says his law is a ministry of death, an administration of death. The apostle says about the law, the letter, that is the letter of the law, kills, it slays us, it consumes us. So if we think about God and we think about our approach to God and we think about God's law, there is nothing pleasant in the experience. It terrorized Israel. It should terrorize us today because the law brings our attention to the infinite moral and spiritual gulf between ourselves and God. And the law silences us. It silences every excuse we have as to why we did this or what we have done or whatever it may be. It silences us. It shuts us up to unbelief, Romans says. It condemns us. It kills us. There is no relief in the law. And there is no comfort in the law until we run to the Lord Jesus for our comfort and our relief and our rescue. A blazing fire. There was darkness and gloom and a tempest. As the fire raged, the dark black smoke rose from the fire. It says in Deuteronomy, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain Out the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness. And he goes on to talk about the voice out of the midst of the fire. And then he talks about the great tempest. So this cloud, this darkness, this tempest, again is describing the effect of the law, of this encounter with God that is posited on his law It's describing the effect of that upon the people. It was a very physical, tangible effect. They could not see. They were in the darkness. The smoke, as it were, hung over them. It obscured stuff. It it obscured something of the glory of God. It also reinforced the darkness that humanity is in. And when we think about the law of God today, it does the same thing, only intellectually. It reinforces the darkness in which men and women and boys and girls live outside of Christ until they seek Christ. And in seeking Christ, step into the light, because he is the light of the world. The law hides. The law hides from us the mercy and the grace and the love of God. The law shuts us in. 
into a room where all there is is the severity of God without relief. The law shuts us in there. It is a terrorizing and terrible thing. And the tempest, the storm that raged round Mount Sinai illustrates the tempest that's caused within the soul of a person as the law of God stirs up within them dark, conflicting, perplexing, disquieting thoughts. The law, when it's faced up to, overwhelms us. The sheer inherent rectitude of the law its absolute rectitude highlights how wrong we, we are in ourselves. It exposes us. It condemns us. It gives us no relief until it drives us to Christ. The law by itself. And yet, as John Owen says, God's, God was and God is Exceedingly glorious in these things. It was a spectacular revelation. The fire and the darkness and the smoke and the tempest and the voice that they heard at Mount Sinai, it was a light and power show that has never been repeated in the history of humanity. It was spectacular. It was glorious to use the Bible's word. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. The ministry of death, referring to the law, the ministry of death came with such glory. And he goes on, he goes on to describe the contrast between the lesser and the greater. He goes on to say this. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, the ministry of righteousness, that is the gospel, must far exceed it for glory. Indeed, if this is the case, what once had glory, that is the law, has come to have no glory at all in comparison with the glory that surpasses it, that is the glory of the gospel. What the law does is manifest the glory of God's holiness, justice, and power. The gospel does not, does not disguise the holiness, justice, and power of God, but it accents and accentuates the love and grace and mercy of God. We see more of God in the gospel than they saw in the law. Fourthly, there was the sound of a trumpet. It wasn't a real trumpet. It tells you. It was the sound. It was like a trumpet. These trumpets are mentioned all over the Bible. The trumpet, the trumpet was a shrill and loud instrument. Uh, we had a couple of trumpets, I think, this morning. I don't know. I didn't count them, but they were loud. And uh, Jim can play his trumpet very loudly when he needs to. 
Trumpets were used widely in the ancient world. They were used in battle to encourage the troops, sometimes to terrify the enemy. Occasionally, they were used to signal a change of orders from from the captain. In Israel, the trumpet heralded the year of jubilee, that is, every 50th year when slaves were liberated. On the first day of the seventh month every year, it called all of Israel together to hear a public reading of the law of God in memory of Mount Sinai. Throughout Scripture, the sounding of the trumpet is going to call all of humanity back to Mount Sinai or to a greater mountain, the mountain of the final judgment. For it is the trumpet that will announce the return of Christ. We read this in Paul writing to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It is this trumpet that will signal the last day. It is this trumpet that will gather the whole of humanity before God for that final judgment. It is that trumpet which will be the final summons, the final citation that humanity ever gets. And for those who have ignored the mercy and grace of God, it will be a summons that will be utterly terrifying. John had a vision of this in Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's describing the utter end. The utter end of those who will not accept God's terms of peace. And yet that same trumpet will herald the believer's entrance into the joy and reward of the Lord. So the trumpet's blast heralds that there's no place to hide for some. While the trumpet's blast accentuates the safety of those who are hiding in God. Hiding in God. John Owen again. Under this dreadful summons of the law, the gospel finds us. Under the summons of the law, the gospel finds us. Here's what Paul wrote. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has nothing helpful to say to us about salvation. All the law does is underscore the fact that we are undone. 
Fifthly, there was a voice. A voice's words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. A recognizable voice, a human voice speaking in their language, heard and understood by the whole company of Israel, over a million people, maybe more. It spoke to them in their language. The Lord, it says in Deuteronomy, the Lord spoke to them out of the midst of the fire and they heard his voice. Everyone did. It was overwhelming. The words that he spoke were understood and heard by everyone in Israel. You could not escape the sound of that voice. Here is God speaking as God. They heard it. They heard every word. And what did he say? We know exactly what he said. The words that he spoke were the words, the ten words that we call the Ten Commandments that would later be written down in tablets of stone. Deuteronomy 5 says, These words of the law of the Lord, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice. The voice was so great. It was impossible for anyone anywhere in the camp to avoid hearing it clearly articulating the will of God. So much so it became unbearable. Even though all the other phenomena was scary and terrifying, nothing terrified Israel more than the voice of God. They begged They begged that God should not say any more to them. They begged Moses to get God to stop speaking to them. Nothing terrified them more than the voice of God. Now, we don't understand that. Because we today hear the voice of God speak in the gospel. In the gospel, God speaks in our human nature to us. That is in the human nature of the Lord Jesus. And he still speaks through instruments. He doesn't speak as God to us, because that would terrify us as it terrified Israel. Churches all over the world today, God is using a human instrument with a human voice to speak to his people. As a signal to his people, I'm speaking to you at your level. I'm speaking to you as a human being. I'm using this instrument to bring myself close to you, to speak in your language so you can understand it. Well, I'm speaking English. I don't know what you speak, but nonetheless, to speak in as much of a common language as we possibly can. And what were these words? At one level, these words simply resonate with what they already knew deep within them. We talk about natural law. We talk about the natural law that God placed in the human heart right from the very beginning. In Eden, when God speaks to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, the image bearers of God are given God's law. God's law didn't change from Eden to Sinai, and it hasn't changed from Sinai to this day. God's law is simple. 
and he has written it in the human heart, in the human conscience. And it's still there. Obscured, of course. The image has been defaced. But the remnants are still there, and natural law still is there in the heart. That's why people who don't know God can still do good things. Very often we try to suppress that knowledge. We put a lid on it, as Paul says in Romans 1. We try to keep it down. We can't try to keep it in its place. Because it would condemn us otherwise. I mean, those people that voted to kill live infants need to do something very serious to that natural sense of law deep in their conscience to make that kind of choice. They have to suppress it. They have to do something serious to their inner being in order to be able to wake up in the morning and think anything good about themselves. The law of God is written in our hearts, and the law of God now at Sinai is re-spoken publicly to the people of Israel. It's given to the people of Israel to maintain and retain and proclaim to the generations that would come, here is God's law. Here is what God is saying to his people. God gives his law to his church so that it might be heard by us once again. That law is the measure. That that law is the measure of my obedience with God. That law is the mirror in which I see the state of my own soul. And that law which God gave to Moses is telling us something else, that his will for us remains stable, unalterable, ever-present to our conscience as well as to our minds. The law reveal his righteous requirements for his image-bearing creatures. Well, that's all I have to say. So I've got three applications sneak, to sneak in at the end. The law of God sets forth the majesty of God. The majesty of God, including His holiness. Let me put it to you like this. No one, no one in this room, no one listening to me, no one should even think or hope of appearing before God with any hope or any assurance until they know how they are going to answer to His law. I want to repeat this. You were to die today, if you were to die today, you need to know what you are going to say with respect of the law of God. It hasn't changed. It is unalterable. I'm going to help you here. Don't think you'll be able to argue that you've kept it. Because when Jesus came, he went far deeper into that law and he demonstrated that what, what would appear to be God referring simply to external things that you could or couldn't do, Jesus was probing into the heart. The law was meant to probe into the heart. God was interested in, 
in motivations, the motives of the heart. If you're banking on arguing your case before the law, I'm going to tell you right now, the conclusion will be condemnation. The only hope you have in relation to the law of God is when you come into the presence of God, you say, ah, every one of those commandments has been perfectly obeyed. Every one of those commandments has been obeyed not only in the letter, but in the spirit of the law. By my champion, by the mediator, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the law requires a sentence of death for my infractions of that law, that penalty has already been exhausted in the death of Jesus, in my place, for my sins. The law sets forth the majesty of God. Even when Jesus came into the world, remember? Peter and the others are in the boat. Jesus causes the miraculous catch of fish. Peter's instinctive reaction when he sees a divine deed done in a human way by Jesus recognizes he's in the presence of the Lord, which means the Lord of Israel. And he says, depart from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Sin. Jesus hadn't, Jesus hadn't said anything about sin. Jesus hadn't mentioned a word about sin. He just had, was there. He was there. And confronted by his divinity, Peter has no recourse but to say, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. The law sets forth the majesty of God. The law exposes the corruption of our hearts. Israel begged that God not speak to them. And do you know what they begged God for? They said to Moses, they said, Moses, would you please, would you please go and have your conversations with God in private so that God talks to you? And then you can come and tell us what God has to say, but, but we would really rather you and God talk this out on your own and that you would represent us quietly behind the scenes to God. Moses would you be the mediator here? Would you be the mediator here? They understood they needed a mediator because the law exposed their hearts. That's what the law always does. And the law drives us. Here's the third thing, the last thing. The law drives us to Christ. Why? Because the law at one level was given to us to show us that we could never measure up. The law was given to us to demonstrate to our conscience and our understanding that we could never self-justify. We could never justify ourselves. That we needed something else. We needed a Savior. We need a mediator. We need someone to keep the law on our behalf. We need someone to take the penalty of the law on our behalf. That's why Paul says in Galatians, the law was the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law says measure up. And if you don't measure up, like the schoolmaster used to do to me, 
he would slap me in the back of the head. Gulliger. Sometimes, and by the way, this was in seminary, sometimes we, we, had a, <laughs> we had a Greek professor, and he could get me with a piece of chalk. Children, ask your parents what chalk is. <laughs> he could get me with a piece of chalk at the back, I was always at the back, at the back of the room. I was in Greek. While her ladyship here, that is Christine, was the star pupil. I was having chalk flung at me. That's what the law does, though. It's a school. It gives you the law. The law slaps you around the face. The law pats you in the back of the head. The law. Those chalk at you. The law. The law is continually putting you down. Putting you down. Why? Because it's making you realize you need a savior. Drives you to Christ. It drives you to Christ. And you need Christ. I need Christ today. The wonder of the gospel is that Christ is there for us. He has come. Grace and peace came by Jesus Christ. Grace. There's no grace in law. But there's grace in Christ. And when you come to Christ, he sends you back to the law. But this time he sends you back to the law in a whole new way because the law, he says, you, you, you feel happy now that you've got salvation. You feel happy now there's no condemnation. You feel happy now that you're right with God. You feel happy now that you've got the hope of glory. You feel grateful? I'll show you how to be grateful. Go back to the law and use that as a guide to gratitude. To gratitude. So I ask you this morning, have you come to Christ? Have you come to him? Because if you're waiting for some great day of justice, you'll get it. But it will be condemnation. But if you're trusting in the grace of God, that is in God's kindness towards those who deserve condemnation, then you'll enter into life in Jesus' name. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. Blessed be God. We pray, Father, that you would please write your word in our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.